Good morning. Thank you so much for having uh, my family here today. I can only, Aubrey's only water cups are sippy cups. Do you guys make him use these or? Um, anyway, that's, that's all I could find. It's really exciting for me to be here, but also to see Drew on the journey that he's been on and becoming a, a deacon. I'm so grateful for this. It, Drew represents the continued migration of Louisiana Baptist to Harrisonburg Anglicanism. Uh, so at some point, this has to catch up in some way. I'm not sure what that's going to look like, uh, what Louisiana is going to try to do. But anyway, congratulations, Drew. We're really, really excited. Um, so from Church of the Lamb, I want to say greetings. Thank you for your continued prayers for us and your support. Um, who knew that Elkton was different than Harrisonburg? I had, I had no idea. Um, we, my family just hit a year of living in Elkton, a year and a few months now. So when we, when we arrived in Harrisonburg, our oldest son, just he turned three on Friday. He was three or four months old. And uh, he's now three, but last year when we moved to Elkton, we moved twice in one year and had our second, Charlie. And so it was an, a really exciting year. And then learning to, to plant a church, which we're still, we're still working on that part of it. Um, church of the Lamb is doing well and growing and finding its place in Elkton. Uh, I want to say to you that this is a, a very good work. I don't think anyone knew when we started Church of the Lamb what it meant to be a church in Elkton. And if you do a Google search for churches in Elkton, I think you would ask yourself, Elkton needs another church? Um, but what you'd also see if, after living there for a while is that the church is having very little cultural impact. And my understanding of that is, my judgment, though it's only a year, is that the church has uh, preached a gospel that only talks about getting to heaven when you die. And people are very comfortable with that, and why do you need any more at that point? But the church has not said well enough that the gospel has impact for right now, and for the way that we live, and for this place that in some ways seems to be dying and suffering from poverty, from drug use, and from family disintegration across the board. Um, I've begun uh, volunteering at the elementary school on Tuesday mornings and see students who are in very broken families, broken homes. And so I want to say to you that sending a church to Elkton is a good thing. Please continue to pray for us that we would have a faithful presence there represent the love of Christ, and also extend the love of Christ in very concrete, compassionate ways. So, thank you. So this morning, we are going to focus in on verses 31 through 36 of John chapter 8, because I think there's a lot to be said about the freedom that Jesus, Jesus promises, and how that freedom interacts with the own, our own culture that we swim in. Freedom might be the most potent word in our country's history. From its very beginning, until, even until now, freedom was the promise that brought people here, right? And later led them into battle. And still, even now, with all the things that people on different sides of the political divide disagree on, both sides use a common rhetoric of freedom. 
Obviously, they have to mean something a little bit different. As one writer put it, the political rhetoric of freedom may cover a multitude of evils. But because of its overuse, the opposing stances that it's used to justify, it's hard to know exactly what freedom even means. And for Christians, this becomes even more challenging. Because a core claim of our scriptures is that God intends to set people free. Does freedom mean the same thing in both spheres, the political and the spiritual? Should we expect it to mean the same thing? John Stuart Mill was a political philosopher who was influenced by and also has influenced American views on liberty up until today. And he said this, The only freedom which deserves the name is that of pursuing our own good in our own way so long as we do not attempt to deprive others of theirs or impede their efforts to attain it. Oh, last year, at Elkton last week, there was a hip-hip hurrah after I read that. (laughs) No one wants to say amen here? No one? Just kidding. That definition... Especially its influence on the its emphasis on the individual. It's shaped a lot of our country in regard to rights and protections of every person, often in good ways. For instance, it's led to rights and better protections for women, children, and minorities. But could it have a weakness? We all know that freedom without any restraints can be a bad thing. Like a river without banks isn't free, but it's actually a swamp. Freedom without boundaries can be a disaster. Always pursuing your own good in your own way can be terribly isolating. And listen, at its worst, it destroys marriages, families, and entire communities. But the bigger question for those of us who claim to follow King Jesus is this. Can Christian communities thrive if we live by the motto of always pursuing our own good in our own way, as long as we don't deprive others of theirs? Even the the church as a whole, not just individual Christian communities, but the churches spread across a city and uh, uh, all the way out to Elkton. Can these Christian communities develop a good reputation together? Can they thrive in unity under that definition of freedom? I want us to look at verses 31 through 36 through the lens of three questions. What is freedom? Are we free? And how do we live freely? First, what is freedom? You might remember that in John's gospel, Jesus is carrying out his ministry under this banner of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And embedded within the Jewish matrix of the Lamb taking away sin was this promise of freedom. Freedom from the bondage of other people. But listen carefully. It wasn't only a negative freedom in the sense of a freedom from. Did you notice, well, uh, in Exodus chapter 7, actually, 
I'm sorry, David. I, I, I don't know if I put Exodus 14 or I, I don't know what happened, but it was going to be Exodus chapter 7. Augustine, when a different passage was read, he just preached on that other passage. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. In Exodus chapter 7, God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to set his people free so that they may serve me. That was the purpose. So that they may serve me. Now, was God going to deliver the Israelites from bondage in Egypt just into another form of servitude? Think about it. Another form of bondage? From servitude in Egypt to servitude to God? Some people say this about Christianity and about God himself. That he's restricting and enslaving. If that's the case... What's the point? Why go from one slavery to another? But of course, that's not at all the view here. Israel's freedom from bondage in Egypt would mean freedom on the other side, but not just a freedom from, a freedom for service to their creator and the one who set them free, their redeemer. And that whole theme of freedom becomes central to how the Israelites were to live. God establishes laws for his people, not to restrict their freedom, but to enable them to serve him more freely, to serve others more freely. Did you hear what the passage in Galatians said? This is the summary of the law in one word, that you love one another. You see, as a people who had experienced the trauma of bondage, God wanted Israel to ensure that other people didn't have to. Remember how you were slaves in Egypt and I delivered you, he would say. So even their economic laws provided protections for the poor, even redemption and full remission after a period for those people who got into trouble. Because God knows that even economic oppression is a form of slavery. Their freedom from slavery meant freedom for service to God and each other. And this would become evident even in Israel's slave laws. Listen, the Bible and Christianity are often critiqued that, uh, on the idea that if God were truly just, he wouldn't have permitted slavery. But the picture is much more complicated than that. Remember that in a best-case scenario, Laws serve as approximate good. We all know about countries that have tried to codify all kinds of morality. And very few of us would want to live in those places. But at best, the law points in a trajectory toward an ultimate good. So our country and its history has tried to show and point toward marriage as a good thing by granting incentives and these sorts of things. And in Israel, in a period when slavery was universal, the slave laws in Israel protected slaves from abuse. They even provided a plan for release. And most importantly, they pointed toward a long-term vision when all people would be free. And again, the reasoning was this. God freed his people from bondage and for service. 
And this is what he intends for all people and all the creation. That it be free. Not just free from, but free for. Service to its original intent. So the Old Testament is setting the stage. Freedom is not only for independence. Freedom from restraint. Freedom is the ability to flourish in the way you were made. Service to your creator and the creation. And within a devoted community. So if that's the case. If genuine freedom is not a freedom from, but a freedom for, are we really free? Free from ourselves to serve others. Back in John, when Jesus tells the Jews that he can make them free, they are very quick to remind him, we're children of Abraham, we've never been slaves to anyone And we could all say a similar thing, couldn't we? I mean, our fathers fought for our freedom. We inherited it. I I made a bad joke last week, and I told the people in Elkton that I was talking about the first war, not the second war that we won, because we didn't win the second war. They were more sensitive on that one. (laughs) Jesus is talking about a less obvious form of slavery, isn't he? A slavery to sin. Surely that couldn't be any of us. This is a room full of beautiful people. Wonderful people. Think about slavery to sin in this way. Have you ever had an internal compulsion to do something that you know was not the best thing for you to do? Or have you ever had an inability to resist doing something that you know you probably shouldn't do? We can start really small on this. The way on Amazon, you can just push add to cart and purchase. And it's almost like it takes over your own being and you just push it without even realizing it. Or the way that in Netflix or in Amazon Prime, after the end of an episode, it says, play next episode and it just counts down. And you don't have the energy to say no and so you just play that next episode. Or it plays itself. Or maybe it's that third glass of wine that forces itself on you. But it gets more serious. It could be anger. All of a sudden you become a tornado that ravages everything in your path. It's as if you're dragged along. That's the way sin works. You become, it becomes a force and a power that beckons you and your will is not strong enough to resist it. And it's astounding the way that our understanding of our brain draws this out for us even more. Addictive behaviors, for instance, they're now labeled as illnesses oftentimes. And regardless of how you feel about that, there is some truth within this idea. Because they don't start as illnesses. The behaviors do not start out as illnesses. Drug addiction, sex addiction, so on. They become one. Because after practicing sin 
over and over. The addictive behavior, your brain begins to change so that your ability to say no erodes. And you more and more become literally enslaved to your habits and the choices you've made over and over again. You need something akin to divine deliverance to escape. So it's easy to look on those kinds of issues differently. But come on. We've all been and are still in some ways enslaved. Enslaved to self-pity. Enslaved to our own emotions. To our own anxieties. To other people's opinions of us. But then, just like those Jews... Some of us are enslaved to our own sense of our freedom. No one else can tell me I'm enslaved. I'm a member of this family. I've inherited this freedom. In our own forms of self-expression, we believe we're behaving as free people when actually we're slaves to ourselves. Thomas Merton said it this way. Listen very carefully. We too easily assume that we are our real selves and that our choices are really the ones we want to make when in fact our acts of free choice are largely dictated by our psychological compulsions flowing from our inordinate ideas of our own importance. Our choices are too often dictated by our false selves. Read one part, one more time. Our acts of free choice are largely dictated by our own psychological compulsions flowing from our inordinate ideas of our own importance. Our choices are too often dictated by our false selves. If you were really free, would you make the choices that you make? Or would you serve other people in a different way? To what are you enslaved? What is it that you need to be set free from? We all must serve something. This is inherent to our creatureliness. The necessity of serving something or someone. And if we try to not to do that, we refuse to be who we are and we live a lie. So what or whom do you serve? And what might it mean for you to be more free? And this leads to the last question. I think the main question Jesus is trying to answer. This is what Jesus desires for us. How can we be free? So Jesus tells these new followers, if they'll abide in his word, they will be his disciples. They will know the truth and the truth will set them free. But in John's gospel, Jesus is the word. He is the ultimate reality of all things. Later he'll also say, I am the way and the truth and the life. You see, truth 
in contrast to the whole enlightenment project that has attempted to define truth for us, it's not just a set of ideas and objective facts. Truth is personal, it's relational, and truth is what liberates us. An encounter with the reality of all things in the person of Jesus. Because Jesus himself reflects for us what it means to be God and what it means to be a human being. In that sense, he is truth and he is the word. So to be free in that case is to follow this one who is the word and who is the truth. The freest person who ever lived. And how did he carry out his freedom? Well, he took the form of a servant. (laughs) And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. But on the other side, God has exalted him and given him the name above every name. You see, Jesus' freedom and God's freedom is not a freedom from humanity. We would assume God's freedom is the ultimate form of freedom. But in fact, it's not a freedom from, it's, it's not a freedom from restraint. In fact, it's a freedom used for humanity. For us. So against everything our society tells us, We have to embrace that God is not restrictive. God doesn't limit or thwart our own self-discovery. In fact, God is liberating. And loving obedience to God is not a loss of our personal freedom, but it's a liberation. A liberation from all the compulsions to which we often find ourselves subject If we try to find a freedom on our own, in our own way, we'll only find ourselves to be slaves again. And this is the worst part of that slavery. It's slaves to a master who is not generous and is not forgiving. This is why slavery to to God makes us free. Because he is a creator and redeemer who is generous and is forgiving. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed, Jesus says. Think about what it would be like to live as a slave. In the way we often think about slavery. Slaves live in a precarious place. They're owned, but at any point, their owner can sell them. They don't know what their future will look like. But children, children belong to their parents in a different way, right? Not so that parents can use them, but so parents can nurture them. Into mature and free people. So Jesus the Son says he will set you free. But again, this isn't a freedom without boundaries. It's a freedom for which you and I were made. To be children of our Father. 
not owned in the sense that we think of, but to belong to our Father in love. So we can say this. In Christ, God gives us back ourselves. Renewed, redeemed, liberated from sin, and free to live as his beloved. That is freedom. About 15 minutes from my parents' house in Louisiana is an old plantation. Uh, and on the back side of the plantation in some overgrown woods is a, the family cemetery. And you can go to that cemetery, and there in the cemetery are the old headstones, but many of them are post-Civil War, right after Civil War. You see children, their full names, birth date, death date. You see parents. But in the middle of the family cemetery is a headstone that simply says, Faithful Harriet, with a death date that is after the Civil War. Now, who knows what that situation was? But the date, along with the fact that this faithful Harriet was buried in the family plot, not away from the family plot, it gives this suggestion that this family learned to live together in a new way. Not as masters and slaves, but somehow as friends, mutual friends, and mutual servants. This is how God sets us free. He invites us into the family. He makes us mutual friends and mutual servants. And this is why Jesus will say to his disciples later, You are my friends. So Jesus invites us to find freedom in him as our friend and as our Lord. And as the passage from Galatians said once again, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So how does this version of freedom, not simply freedom from, but freedom for, freedom for God and freedom for each other, how does it work out for us? Well, if we try to live under the modern myth of freedom, our community as a church will always be undermined. We will never commit to each other. There will always be this looming threat That if you treat me wrongly, if you infringe on my idea of my freedom, I'll bolt. If you confront me about the way I'm using my freedom, I'll bolt. But in the freedom God gives us, we belong to God and we belong to each other also. Not as slaves to be used and dominated, but we belong to each other as people who've been freed to live for one another's good. That type of freedom stretches us. 
Because the reality is that all of us need to make hard decisions about the things that we're enslaved to that hinder us from living for each other's good. Some of us are enslaved to our own sense of freedom within our nuclear family. And we need to open up our nuclear family so that we can live for the good of the church as a family. Lent is such a good season to ask God to reveal those things to which we're enslaved. Because as we fast from something that's very significant to us, and as we pray and read scripture, we become more available to God to enable him to speak to us. Did you hear as Drew read the passage about the many times that Jesus accused the Jews of not being able to hear his word? That's a terrible condemnation. That's the worst of condemnations. Not even being able to hear from God. But in Lent, we fast and we open ourselves up and we beg God, would you speak? The slavery that I'm not even aware of, would you show it to me? Are you completely free? Are you free to live for God and others in the way that he created you? And finally, are you following the lamb? The one who is freedom and who in his freedom gave himself for our good. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.